Well, good evening, Hickory Grove, and welcome to the Pastor's Class. My name is Kyler Smith, and I'm privileged to get to spend uh, the next few moments with you in the Word. And so we're glad to have you tuning in tonight. Tonight's a good night to tune in because we're actually starting a new series in the class. For the last several weeks, we had been doing a, a kind of a systematic theology, a, a large overview study of one of the ancient historic creeds called the Apostles' Creed. Well, we wrapped that up last week, and so what we're going to do beginning this evening and for the next several weeks is we're going to be going back to a book of the Bible. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at First and Second Thessalonians, some of the earliest letters Paul wrote. We're going to spend a lot of time picking these two really profound letters apart. And as we do, I pray that the Lord will use this word to encourage you. Now, here's the trick. There's a lot of historical background to make sense of real, any of the New Testament literature. But when you look at one letter, isolated like 1 Thessalonians, it's not going to make much sense unless we just take a step back and recognize what historically was going on when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter, wrote 1 Thessalonians, which incidentally, when I was a child in Awana, having to memorize the books of the Bible, there was one book, or I guess I should say two books, that messed me up more than any other. As a kindergartner, I, for the life of me, could not say Thessalonians. I'm proud to tell you it took me 30 years. I got the name Thessalonians down, and I'm looking forward to studying this text with you. It was written by a man named Paul. You know him well, but let's just put his life into some perspective to really appreciate what he was doing when he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Paul, that great apostle, converted, Acts chapter 9 records, on the road to Damascus where he, in this zealous rage, was going to persecute Christians. Jesus came and appeared to Paul, and from that day forward, Paul was an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. But his ministry really began in earnest several chapters later. He was saved in Acts chapter 9, but it wasn't until Acts 13 that we see Paul be commissioned. In other words, what happens in Acts 13, the Bible actually records it being the Holy Spirit of God commissioning Paul to this most profound ministry, this evangelistic missional ministry where Paul would take the gospel message and he would leave Palestine. He would leave Jerusalem and he would take it to those Jews and Gentiles spread out all over the Roman Empire and hence begins the great ministry, missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Now, First and Second Thessalonians, they actually take place during Paul's second missionary journey. But in order to understand the importance of this second missionary journey, let's get a little perspective by taking a look at his first missionary journey. You can see on this map to my right, Paul's uh, mission begins in the city called Syrian Antioch. It was a town called Antioch in the region of Syria, just north of Palestine, the promised land where Jerusalem is. And he takes off along with a man named Barnabas and John Mark. And off they go. They first take a boat ride over to the island of Cyprus, where they spend some time doing ministry before heading into the mainland, modern-day Turkey. Well, the Bible records that upon arriving in mainland of this Asia Minor region, John Mark leaves them. It doesn't really tell us why, but it says he goes back home. 
And so Barnabas and Paul continue their ministry. And most of their ministry takes place in this region called Galatia, this green you see on the map. Well, Paul actually writes, perhaps most people would regard Galatians to be his first letter he ever wrote. He presumably wrote it on this first missionary journey to these churches he planted in Galatia. Well, he then returned back, and it says he stayed a couple years or so in Antioch. But after some time, he and Barnabas decided that they needed to go back and encourage these churches. They needed to come back to this region of Galatia and see how the churches were doing. But they had a little bit of a debate because Barnabas wanted to bring with them again that man named John Mark. And Paul was having none of it. He thought, since John Mark abandoned us on the last trip, he's not coming with us again. But Barnabas is insistent that this takes place and it causes a schism between Barnabas and Paul. And Paul ends up going off on his own and says, I'm not going to go with you, Barnabas. Paul ends up going with a man named Silas. And Barnabas leaves on his own with John Mark. And the Bible records that John Mark and Barnabas, they actually go back to Cyprus, whereas Paul and Silas, they begin this second missionary journey and they decide to go a different direction. Instead of going east to Cyprus, they go immediately north. And you'll see they take a land route to get back to this region of Galatia where those churches were planted that Paul had planted in his first missionary journey. Now, as he's making his way through this region, he comes to these cities of Lystra and Derbe and Iconium. These are all in the region of Galatia. And he meets a young man there who becomes his protege, who becomes one of the guys that goes and travels with Paul. You know him as Timothy, well-known in the New Testament. So you've got this trio, this team of Paul and Silas and Timothy on this ministry uh, mission called Paul's Second Missionary Journey. And they're making their way through. Now, the Bible records that as they are going through the region of Galatia, Paul really wanted to go and minister in this region called Asia. So don't think Asia like we would uh, today where China and whatnot is. This was the region of Asia in modern-day Turkey. That's where Paul wanted to go. But the Bible actually says that the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from going into the region of Asia. The Bible also says that the Spirit prevented Paul from going into this northern region called Bithynia. So Paul cuts the, makes, cuts the difference and he goes through and he's going over to this region called uh, Troas, this town called Troas. And from Troas, he gets this unusual vision, revelation from God. It's called the Macedonian vision where this man basically pleads to Paul come to Macedonia, which is that region in the far uh, left-hand corner of the screen that is in modern-day Greece. And this vision compels Paul to go to Macedonia and bring the gospel. And we see unusual ministry take place when Paul gets at last to Macedonia. The first major city he arrives at in Macedonia is the city of Philippi. And you know that letter to the church at Philippi, the book of Philippians. Paul undergoes um, some unusual persecution while in Philippi. He's locked in a jail, uh, earthquake frees them, an angel delivers them, and off they go. And after leaving Philippi, they make their way down this path, this path called the Via Ignatia. This was a Roman road that basically went from uh, the sea next to Italy all the way across the land of Greece, 
all the way to what we would call modern day Istanbul. At that time, it would have been referred to as like Byzantium, which is kind of right over here where you see this purple and yellow connect. This major road of commerce, this major road of travel, Paul and his uh, coterie, they are on this path, and the next major city they come to is the city of Thessalonica, the center of first and second Thessalonians. And so we see at the beginning of first and second Thessalonians, Paul address his letter to this church, mentioning the three names of the guy on his mission. You see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, he begins it with the names Paul, Silvanus, which is an unusual name, but it basically is it's another name for Silas, and Timothy. And Paul addresses from those three to this church at Thessalonica. And what I want to do today is instead of beginning to read what Paul has to say to this church, I want to go and look at Acts chapter 17, which records for us what actually transpired between Paul and Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica that eventually leads Paul to write this letter to this church. In other words, what was behind Paul writing this letter? We need to understand what took place in order to appreciate the import of Paul's words to this church he planted. And so this evening I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And what I'd like to do is read verses 1 through 10. This is the historical narrative in the book of Acts of Paul and Silas' ministry in Thessalonica. And so Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. Now some of them were persuaded, and they ended up joining Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they ended up forming a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, which is where we believe Paul was staying, and seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, and they were shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities, they were pretty disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. But verse 10 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night out of town to the region of Berea. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and you would minister your word in a way I cannot. Impress upon the hearts and minds of these brothers and sisters the message of your letters to the church at Thessalonica. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've heard it said, the darker the night, the brighter the stars, which may explain why this otherwise infant, small, new church in Thessalonica 
shone with brilliance the gospel light in this region. You wouldn't expect it from this church. Brand new, relatively small, but as you read the letter Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, this first epistle, you'll see Paul remark about just how unusually powerful their ministry and witness is in this city. And perhaps that's because the city of Thessalonica was unusually dark. This was a powerful city. Thessalonica was planted about 350 or so years before the time of Paul. It was actually established by one of the generals that succeeded the great Alexander the Great. And in around the year 315 or so, you see this city be established, named after uh, Alexander the Great's half-sister named Thessalonica. They established this city, and this city becomes an, a major port. You can see it on this map right up here on the bay of this Aegean Sea. And this city was not only right on the water, it was on that road I already mentioned, that great Roman road called the Via Ignatia, this major commerce road. And so it was really at a crossroads. This city at the time of Paul had roughly 200,000 folks or so within it. But what was most dark about this city was the spiritual idolatry that was rampant. In fact, if you would travel on that Roman road that entered the city, there would be this great gate that you would come to. And as you would enter this big gate, you would see all these reliefs of all these false gods, this pantheon of gods inscribed over the city gates as you enter. As you come within the city, bustling with 200,000 people, filled with sailors and filled with uh, all these people traveling throughout the mainland of Greece, you would see an absolute pantheon of religious idolatry. A lot of this idolatry had unusual, grotesque sexual overtones where that aspect of humanity would be folded into worship in a most disgusting way. This marked the culture. This wasn't an excess. It wasn't something on the side. This was part and parcel of life in Thessalonica. So it was an unusually powerful city. It was an unusually pagan city. This was a city that you could compare something to like a San Francisco, a major port city or a New Orleans, major importance to the region. But unlike these cities, from top to bottom, every aspect of it was covered with cultural idolatry. And Paul Silas and Timothy, they enter the absolute darkness of Thessalonica and they pierce this darkness with the light of the gospel. And as they bring this gospel light to this city, you see recorded in Acts chapter 17 that there's a few responses. On the one hand, you'll see some people, they hate it. They hear this gospel light and they hate the light. They love the darkness. They reject it. They run from it. In fact, the Bible records a mob forming in light of this gospel light. You see an attack occur because they hate this message. There are people who hate the gospel. But praise be to God, there are some, the Bible records, as loving the light. They see it and as if scales fall from their eyes, they receive this gospel message and it says they love the light of the gospel. Now the unusual thing is not that people were converted. We know that happens routinely. Praise be to God, people are converted weekly, even in our own church, Hickory Grove. 
It's not unusual for the gospel to penetrate dark places. What is unusual about this infant church in this dark city of Thessalonica is not that they began, it's that they continued. For the Bible records Paul and Silas undergoing unusual persecution, leaving town, and yet this church sustains. The, the, the narrative of the text is that Paul and Silas get run out of town and they head south and they go down to Athens and Corinth and southern Greece. And while down in the Athens and Corinth region, Paul, whose heart is so knit to this church he had planted up in Thessalonica, writes a letter to them and sends this letter back to them. And as we study 1 Thessalonians now for the next several weeks, you're going to see Paul be unusually proud of these new believers. You're going to see Paul commend their strength and their faith, and that should stop all of us. It should make all of us think and wonder, what was it that got these new believers who were reared in idolatry? What was it that got these believers in a culture of absolute darkness to love the light and to continue to steadfastly promote that gospel light in an otherwise dark city? What made them persevere in the midst of such opposition? What made this church sustain? should make us all step back and wonder, what is it that prevents us when our opposition is so infinitely less, as we must admit? What, what is it about me? I'm a minister of the gospel. What is it about me that when I'm on an airplane, sometimes I think twice about sharing the gospel? What is it about me when I'm walking down the street of my neighborhood, I who know this gospel and love to preach it get selfish and comfortable and my lips seal up as I'm walking down the road? What is it that makes us want to hide the light of the gospel? You're going to see the secret that Paul shows us in 1 Thessalonians. You're going to see the secret of the church at Thessalonica's success. What made this church so unusually bright in an otherwise dark city? I think the theme of Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica are simply this. A real gospel can change, can transform real people. A real gospel can do this. It will change not a good version of you. A real gospel, it can change the real you. And as we see in Acts chapter 17, I want you to see what the gospel does to motivate us. Because that's one thing that the gospel really does, is it takes us in our sinful flesh and it provides us the motivation that we would not ordinarily find in ourselves. And so, if you're taking notes, I want you to mark this down. When we think of how the gospel motivated Paul and this infant church, look with me, you will, at verses 1 through 4, because we see this. In these first four verses, we see the gospel motivate Paul and this church to proclaim. In other words, the gospel has this unusual ability to motivate you and me who otherwise want to keep our lips closed. It motivates us to open our mouths and to proclaim it. I want you to see what's going on when Paul starts to declare this gospel in Thessalonica. He's entering this dark city, and the first place the Bible records him going to in verse 1, it says he went to the synagogue of the Jews. 
That synagogue, it means a gathering, and this is where all the Jews would come together. And you got to remember, uh, particularly at that day and time, the Jews, by generalization, they hated the name of Jesus. They resisted this Messiah. They thought he was a fraud. They thought he was fake. In other words, Paul was going into the belly of the beast. Why would he go to the synagogue to proclaim where he would get persecuted, more likely to be persecuted than anywhere else? You see, what the gospel did for Paul is when Jesus saved Paul on that road to, the, to Damascus, he motivated Paul to proclaim this good news with courage. He came into the synagogue and he recognized that there is an inherent risk as a follower of Jesus. Paul had counted the cost, he had taken up the cross, and he was not going to go to the easy parts of the city. He went straight to the synagogue where he knew this gospel would be hated the most, and it is there he begins to do something. Verse 2 says he begins to reason and explain and prove the gospel. In other words, you see Paul uh, being motivated by the gospel not just to have courage in his proclamation, The gospel motivates Paul to have clarity in his proclamation. Now, here's why you need the gospel to motivate you to do that. How often have you found yourself when you you desire, you, you feel like you have the courage to share the gospel, but you're just not quite sure what to say? You feel like, man, I just don't know that I'm really going to be able to reason with these people. I don't, I don't know that I'm going to be able to articulate it clearly enough. The gospel motivates believers to do the hard work so that they can share it. If you do not meditate on God's Word, if you are not a student of this book, if you are not in regular communion with God, how can you possibly expect the Lord to grant you the gift of clarity as you proclaim His message? Paul, motivated motivated by the wonderful, glorious news of the gospel, he labored to understand the message of Jesus. And so he was able to stand in this synagogue and he was able, the Bible says, to reason with them. He didn't just talk about the Bible, he reasoned. Moreover, he explained. He was able to add in other texts to help them see. Also, it says that he proved the gospel to them. You could call that illustrating, pulling things out of their own life to help them see with clarity just how good the good news of Jesus is. You can also kind of add into that word proving that Paul had an unusual conviction along with this clarity and courage. This wasn't a dispassionate presentation. Paul really came at it with all his being, and in this synagogue, he gave it his all to help these people see just how good the good news of Jesus was. This should illustrate for each of us just how important expository preaching really is. Maybe you think it's a fad, maybe you think it's some sort of just, you know, pet way of preaching at a church like Hickory Grove, and it ought not be. For expository preaching is essentially what Paul was doing right here in Thessalonica. It's taking the inspired and errant Word of God and pulling out of it God's truth, explaining the text to the people listening. This is what our pastor does every Sunday. This is what every man, Lord willing, that enters the pulpit at Hickory Grove does. We stand here with the authority of God's Word and say, Thus saith the Lord. We explain it. That is biblical exposition. And Paul shows for us that what he did when he entered the city of Thessalonica is he, motivated by the gospel of Jesus, proclaimed this message to these people with courage, with clarity, 
and with conviction. And if you long to have a courageous, clear, and convicting gospel message be born on your lips, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to give yourself to prayer and to the Word. Ask the Lord to use you in spite of you and become a student of God's Word and watch the Lord do that. He delights in using people in spite of people for His namesake. He delights to use you for His glory and not your own. And so plead with the Lord and watch the Lord motivate you in a way you've never seen Him do this before. Number one, the gospel motivates you and me to proclaim. But we see at the latter half of Acts chapter 17 that it doesn't just motivate us to proclaim the gospel. It really also motivates us to persevere. Because notice what happens beginning in verse 5. You, you see Paul, well, you really see him meet some of the worst opposition possible. Beginning in verse 5, it says the Jews hated this message. They were jealous. The, some wicked men of the rabble, the Bible says, formed a mob and they started this uproar. They ended up attacking. <laughs> Has this ever happened to you? I would guess not. This is not the type of persecution we ever may be tempted to think we uh, encounter. Paul, upon preaching this gospel message with courage and clarity and conviction, he is met with absolute categorical opposition. Now, how do you stand up in the midst of that? Would you continue as Paul did? The truth of the matter is, if I, hint, if I sense even the slightest hint of opposition, my flesh tends to backpedal and just say, not today. My flesh tends to say, you know what, now is just not the time. I'll do it at another time. And I'll even try to self-justify myself. Paul persevered. And how did he do this? The only rationale to Paul's perseverance was not some crazy mania. This was Paul motivated by the gospel of Jesus to persevere. Paul, motivated with just how good the good news of Jesus is, he persevered despite the opposition of the mob. He persevered despite the persecution of this attacking mob, these men who came and ended up attacking the very house he was staying in. Moreover, he was motivated to persevere despite uh, legislation. Because look, look what happens in verse 7. They start to cite the law itself. And they say that these guys are acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're basically saying, hey, listen, you may disagree with me, but what you're doing, Paul, is against the law. Now, Paul could have just laid down and said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and I will obey. But Paul was not appropriating that truth in this instance because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And he knew that the gospel is above everything. He would respect the Roman authorities at all costs unless the gospel was at stake. And so Paul, despite the accusations that he was breaking Caesar's decrees, Paul persevered despite that prosecutorial accusation. Paul kept going. He persevered. And the last thing we see is this church ends up persevering. It's not just Paul, because what happens in verse 10? The Bible actually records that Paul and Silas, at the encouragement of this infant church, of the brothers, it says Paul and Silas, they escape town. They leave and they head south 
to the city of Berea. Now, were they just bailing ship? Were they scared and gave up? Well, no, the text records that it was the church that admonished and encouraged Paul and Silas, no, you need to go. For your own safety, you need to go. Leadership was gone. And yet, the Bible records that the church of Thessalonica did not fold in the face of opposition. It did not fold in the face of persecution. It didn't fold in the face of legislation. It didn't fold upon losing their leaders, Paul and Silas. For we see in 1 Thessalonians, Paul write to this church absolutely astounded and amazed that they did not just persevere. They persevered in such a way that it blew Paul away. This church did not just survive. It indeed thrived after Paul left. And so why don't you turn your attention with me to 1 Thessalonians. Now that we've gotten kind of a, a historical background to what's going on in this text, for the rest of tonight, I just want to look at one verse. So rest assured, we won't be going for that much longer. Just the first verse of 1 Thessalonians. We've already seen Paul begin this letter by saying, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus meaning Silas. And he writes this letter, the book says, to this group of people. And this group of people are called the Church of the Thessalonians. Now, we know that word church. We're in one for that matter. That word church is from the Greek ekklesia, which means called out ones. Now, when you use that language called out of something, this is what you're meaning. You're leaving something and being called to something else. So a church is a group of people that have been called out of something and called to something. And this is what has happened to these people in Thessalonica. You see, the gospel didn't just motivate them to proclaim and to persevere. The gospel did something else to this infant church. The gospel transformed the people of Thessalonica. It transformed this group that the Bible records as a church. And we see this because they were called out of something and called to something. What were they called out of? Well, we've kind of already been through this. Those men and women who composed the church of Thessalonica, these were men and women, Jews and Greeks, who were a part of that idolatrous culture in that city. They were part of the darkness. This wasn't the good fringe of the city. These were people steeped in idolatry. In the case of the Jews, these were people steeped in legalism, thinking that they could justify themselves before God. These were people that did not believe the central tenets of the gospel. And the Bible says that when God saved them, He called them out of this. This church was called out. Now, what were they called to? Well, time doesn't permit us to go through all the evidences in the book of 1 Thessalonians that show us this transformed life. But suffice it to say this, the essence of this church of Thessalonica, it was the fruit of the Spirit. You saw a genuine transformation. In other words, these people who once hated, they now loved. These people who once had no joy, they now had joy. These people who once had no peace with any God, they now had peace with God. They had patience. They had kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. These people were marked by an unusual transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, to the church 
of the Thessalonians, these changed people. I want you to think about the import of that word church. A church is not a facility. It's not a set of programs. It's not a preacher. It's not a Sunday school. It's not just a large group. A church at its core is a fellowship of transformed believers. The folks that attend a church building do not represent the church. The church is all those men and women throughout the ages who have been converted genuinely by the Lord Jesus Christ, who have tasted and seen that He is good, who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And that's why Paul looks at this infant group of people and says to the church at Thessalonica that has been transformed by the gospel of grace. I wonder, consider your own story. Do you remember the transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit of God in your life? Do you remember what it was like before the scales fell from your eyes and you saw Jesus for who he really was? I do. Now, I must say my testimony is not one of those wild and radical ones. I was converted at a relatively young age, but I distinctly remember before that age not really caring about the gospel. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate Jesus. I I would have said all the right things. I I had cognitive assent to most of the gospel facts being reared in in a local church, but the gospel wasn't good news to me. It was just news. It was something I knew things about, but I had not tasted it and seen it to be good. But then one day, the gospel came in and broke down my defenses. It's as if my eyes were finally opened and I saw Jesus as unspeakably good and my sin as unspeakably evil and I wanted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, I have seen a transformation. It was testified in my church. Now, you got to remember, I wasn't one of those bad kids before. It's not like I had some sort of bad past to characterize the major difference between my converted life and my pre-converted life. I was actually a pretty good kid before. And even then, my church noticed a change. Some of those changes were wrought by me manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. A desire to be a part of the church, to study God's Word, to pray, to serve, to do anything I could for the sake of the name of Christ. Do you remember that story for you? If not, I encourage you to just take a few moments before we study the book of Thessalonians for the rest of these next several weeks and consider what transformation has God wrought in you. And maybe this would be a good time to confess areas of your life that the gospel has not sufficiently uh, sanctified yet. And mercy, there are an infinite number of those areas in my life. Oh God, would you continue to transform me day by day into the image of your Son. The gospel transformed these people, and I think a good word we could use to describe that is, it transformed them horizontally. Their relationship with all the people in this church was changed, and so the church noticed it. Does the church notice, let's put it a little bit more closely, does your family notice, your spouse, your children, do they notice the change wrought in you? The gospel transforms horizontally, but let's flip it. The gospel also transforms vertically. In other words, it transforms not just how we relate horizontally one to the other. The gospel transforms vertically how we relate to God Himself. And we see this evidenced in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Because after addressing this church, this transformed group of the Thessalonians, 
he gives that, uh, that common refrain that he does in so many of his letters. He says, grace and peace to you. Why does Paul say this again and again? Paul knows that when the gospel transforms a person, it doesn't just transform their behavior, the way they react to one another. It transforms fundamentally and categorically how you relate to God. So let's think about those two words, grace and peace. Two simple words we know well, but let's think about the weight of the word grace. When God extended His grace to you, what He did is He transformed your position before Him. So let's think about what our position before God was prior to experiencing His grace. Before grace, I stood utterly and completely condemned before God. My sin completely covered me. I had no argument. I had no plea. I had nothing in my hands to offer the Lord. I stood condemned before a holy God. The Bible says my sin separated me from God completely. There was nothing I could do to bridge that gap. I was at enmity with God. Positionally, I could not enter His presence. The Bible says that I was utterly and completely separated. My position, in other words, was hopeless. But God came and did for me, and I trust for you, what I and you could never do for ourselves. God shed His grace on us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we who were once separated from God, we have now been reconciled to God. We who stood condemned before God the Father now stand justified before God the Father. We who were positionally separated, we are now positionally before Him holy, which is just an insane thing to consider because I know my heart. And I know the longer I walk with the Lord, the longer I read His Word, the more I grow in my relationship to God in prayer, the more I see my sin, the less holy I see myself to be. I feel less holy today than I did when I first was converted. And it's not because I have not been following the Lord. It's because the more I see Him, the more I see Him to be holy and me not. Think of the absolute amazing grace of God that I who stood condemned now stand before Him justified and holy. He has transformed my position before Him. It's an amazing, amazing grace. But there's something else that happens. He doesn't just give us this change of position vertically before God. He gives us this change of relationship vertically to God. You see, when, you, when He uses that word peace, He's now referring to this relationship we have with Him. So I'm not just justified positionally before God by His grace. I actually can go to Him now. I have a relationship. I'm not just legally entitled to come in. He has a relationship with me. He and I who were once enemies have now been made friends. We are at peace with one another. It is amazing, amazing wonder that the God of all creation is at peace with a wretched sinner like me. And it is nothing, nothing due to anything I have done. It is solely, completely from top to bottom due to the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this astounding grace, this astounding peace that Paul proclaims to this transformed church in Thessalonica and says, thanks be to God, you have been transformed horizontally, 
You've been transformed vertically. You have been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a new creation. And so, I wonder for you, are you a new creation? Maybe you've gone to church for so many years and this has been one of those questions you've always put outside your mind. You're not quite sure what that means and you're not sure what it would even look like for you. If you hear this gospel of motivation and this gospel of transformation and you recognize that there is zero motivation within you and you really can't see much transformation within you, I want you to hear the call of the Lord Jesus Christ to you this evening to turn from your sin, to just confess even right now as I speak to you, Oh God, I confess that I am who you say I am. I confess that you are who you say you are. I need you to do for me what I could not do for myself. If you just confess your sins and believe that Jesus is who He says He is, the Bible says with great power, authority, and miraculous wonder, you will be saved. You will see the light of the gospel like the church at Thessalonica did. You will be just as those people Paul addressed. The church, you transformed ones, grace and peace to you. This comes to you by the gospel of Jesus. So just turn from your sins this evening and plead the mercy of Christ on you and you will be saved. But I trust and suspect that the vast majority tuned in to this broadcast tonight, you've tasted and seen that He's good. You know of the transforming work the gospel has wrought in your life, but you recognize that if you're anything like me, you routinely lack the motivation you need. And so I'm calling you tonight to do as I have done as I've studied this text over the last day. And that's, oh God, would you continue your gospel wrought transforming work in my heart. Grant me the motivation that you granted the Apostle Paul. Grant me the motivation that you granted Silas, that you gave Timothy, that you gave that new church in Thessalonica, that you gave those baby believers who didn't know anything yet. Oh, would you give me that motivation so that I might faithfully proclaim your word and that I might faithfully persevere amidst opposition that pales in comparison to the opposition the church at Thessalonica met. Oh God, would you use me in spite of me for the sake of your name. If you can resonate with me, I encourage you tonight to respond to this message by pleading with God to do that work in your life and tune in with us next week. That would be my final encouragement to you as we continue this study through 1 Thessalonians and we see just how much transformation the gospel actually did wrought in these people. Just how much amazing transformation occurred in these previously pagan idolaters. See what the gospel did for these folks and watch what the gospel can do in you. Join us next week as we continue our study through the first and second epistles to the church at Thessalonica. Would you join me as we pray and we'll conclude our evening together. Our Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and that you would minister this word in a way I cannot to the people tuned in this evening. Father, for those of us who are convicted by our lack of gospel motivation, would you come and do that work in our hearts? Grant us the motivation to proclaim and persevere. 
And for those, Lord, who have not tasted and seen that you are good, oh, would you work a transforming work in their hearts, even this moment. Change the way they vertically relate to you, O God, and let's enjoy with great hope and expectation how you will sanctify them, transforming the way they horizontally interact with one another. For the glory of your name, Lord, and the good of this church, do this. In Jesus' name, amen.